Chapter Thirty Three of Oliver Twist. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Three. Wherein the happiness of Oliver and his friends experiences a sudden check. Spring flew swiftly by, and summer came. If the village had been beautiful at first, it was now in the full glow and luxuriance of its richness. The great trees, which had looked shrunken and bare in the early months, had now burst into strong life and health, and stretching forth their green arms over the thirsty ground, converted open and naked spots into choice nooks, where there was a deep and pleasant shade from which to look upon the wide prospect, steeped in sunshine, which lay stretched beyond. The earth had donned her mantle of brightest green, and shed her richest perfumes abroad. It was the prime and vigour of the year. All things were glad and flourishing. Still the same quiet life went on at the little cottage, and the same cheerful serenity prevailed among its inmates. Oliver had long since grown stout and healthy, but health or sickness made no difference in his warm feelings of a great many people. He was still the same gentle, attached, affectionate creature that he had been when pain and suffering had wasted his strength, and when he was dependent for every slight attention and comfort on those who tended him. One beautiful night, when they had taken a longer walk than was customary with them, for the day had been unusually warm, and there was a brilliant moon, and a light wind had sprung up which was unusually refreshing. Rose had been in high spirits too, and they had walked on in merry conversation, until they had far exceeded their ordinary bounds. Mrs. Maylie, being fatigued, they returned more slowly home. The young lady, merely throwing off her simple bonnet, sat down to the piano as usual. After running abstractedly over the keys for a few minutes, she fell into a low and very solemn air, and as she played it, they heard a sound, as if she were weeping. "'Rose, my dear,' said the elderly lady. Rose made no reply, but played a little quicker, as though the words had roused her from some painful thoughts. "'Rose, my love?' cried Mrs. Maylie, rising hastily and bending over her. "'What is this? In tears? My dear child, what distresses you?' "'Nothing, aunt, nothing,' replied the young lady. "'I don't know what it is. I can't describe it, but I feel—not ill, my love,' interposed Mrs. Maylie. "'No, no, oh, oh not ill,' replied Rose shuddering as though some deadly chillness were passing over her while she spoke. "'I shall be better presently. Close the window, pray.' Oliver hastened to comply with her request. The young lady, making an effort to recover her cheerfulness, strove to play some livelier tune, but her fingers dropped powerless over the keys. Covering her face with her hands, she sank upon a sofa, and gave vent to the tears which she was now unable to repress. "'My child,' said the elderly lady, folding her arms about her, "'I never saw you so before. "'I would not alarm you if I could avoid it,' rejoined Rose. "'But, indeed, I have tried very hard, and cannot help this—I fear I am ill, aunt.' She was, indeed, for when the candles were brought— they saw that in the very short time which had elapsed since their return home, 
the hue of her countenance had changed to a marble whiteness. Its expression had lost nothing of its beauty, but it was changed, and there was an anxious, haggard look about the gentle face, which it had never worn before. Another minute, and it was suffused with a crimson flush, and a heavy wildness came over the soft blue eye. Again this disappeared, like the shadow thrown by a passing cloud, and she was once more deadly pale. Oliver, who watched the old lady anxiously, observed that she was alarmed by these appearances, and so in truth was he. But seeing that she affected to make light of them, he endeavoured to do the same, and they so far succeeded that when Rose was persuaded by her aunt to retire for the night, she was in better spirits, and appeared even in better health, assuring them that she felt certain she would rise in the morning quite well. "'I hope,' said Oliver, when Mrs. Maylie returned, "'that nothing is the matter. She don't look well to-night, but—' The old lady motioned to him not to speak, and sitting herself down in a dark corner of the room, remained silent for some time. At length she said, in a trembling voice, "'I hope not, Oliver. I have been very happy with her for some years.' too happy, perhaps. It may be time that I should meet with some misfortune, but I hope it is not this." "'What?' inquired Oliver. "'The heavy blow,' said the old lady, "'of losing the dear girl who has so long been my comfort and happiness.' "'Oh, God forbid!' exclaimed Oliver hastily. "'Amen to that, my child.' said the old lady, wringing her hands. "'Surely there is no danger of anything so dreadful,' said Oliver. Two hours ago she was quite well.' "'She is very ill now,' rejoined Mrs. Maylie, "'and will be worse, I am sure. My dear, dear Rose, oh, what shall I do without her?' She gave way to such great grief that Oliver, suppressing his own emotion, ventured to remonstrate with her, and to beg earnestly that, for the sake of the dear young lady herself, she would be more calm. "'And consider, ma'am,' said Oliver, as the tears forced themselves into his eyes, despite all of his efforts to the contrary, "'Oh, consider how young and good she is, and what pleasure and comfort she gives to all about her. I am sure, certain.' quite certain, that for your sake, who are so good yourself, and for her own, and for the sake of all she makes so happy, she will not die. Heaven will never let her die so young." "'Hush!' said Mrs. Maylie, laying her hand on Oliver's head. "'You think like a child, poor boy. But you teach me my duty notwithstanding. I had forgotten it for a moment. Oliver! but I hope I may be pardoned, for I am old, and have seen enough of illness and death to know the agony of separation from the objects of our love. I have seen enough, too, to know that it is not always the youngest and best who are spared to those that love them. But this should give us comfort in our sorrow, for heaven is just, and such things teach us, impressively, that there is a brighter world than this and that the passage to it is speedy. God's will be done. I love her, and he knows how well." 
Oliver was surprised to see that as Mrs. Maylie said these words, she checked her lamentations as though by one effort, and drawing herself up as she spoke, became composed and firm. He was still more astonished to find that this firmness lasted, and that, under all the care and watching which ensued, Mrs. Maylie was ever ready and collected, performing all the duties which had devolved upon her, steadily, and, to all external appearances, even cheerfully. But he was young, and did not know what strong minds are capable of under trying circumstances. How should he, when their possessors so seldom know themselves? An anxious night ensued. When morning came, Mrs. Maylie's predictions were but too well verified. Rose was in the first stage of a high and dangerous fever. "'We must be active, Oliver, and not give way to useless grief,' said Mrs. Maylie, laying her finger on her lip, as she looked steadily into his face. "'This letter must be sent, with all possible expedition, to Mr. Losburn. It must be carried to the market-town, which is not more than four miles off, by the footpath across the field, and thence dispatched by an express on horseback straight to Chertsey. The people at the inn will undertake to do this, and I can trust to you to see it done, I know." Oliver could make no reply, but looked his anxiety to be gone at once. "'Here is another letter,' said Mrs. Maylie, pausing to reflect. "'But whether to send it now, or wait until I see how Rose goes on, I scarcely know. I would not forward it unless I feared the worst.' "'Is it for Chertsey too, ma'am?' inquired Oliver, impatient to execute his commission, and holding out his trembling hand for the letter. "'No,' replied the old lady, giving it to him mechanically. Oliver glanced at it, and saw that it was directed to Harry Maylie, Esquire, at some great lord's house in the country, where he could not make out. "'Shall it go, ma'am?' asked Oliver, looking up impatiently. "'I think not.' replied Mrs. Maylie, taking it back. "'I will wait until to-morrow.' With these words she gave Oliver her purse, and he started off, without more delay, at the greatest speed he could muster. Swiftly he ran across the fields, and down the little lanes which sometimes divided them, now almost hidden by the high corn on either side, and now emerging on an open field, where the mowers and haymakers were busy at their work. Nor did he stop once save now and then for a few seconds to recover breath, until he came in a great heat and covered with dust on the little market-place of the market-town. Here he paused and looked about for the inn. There were a white bank, a red brewery, and a yellow town hall, and in one corner there was a large house with all the wood about it painted green, before which was the sign of the George. To this he hastened as soon as it caught his eye. He spoke to a postboy who was dozing under the gateway, and who, after hearing what he wanted, referred him to the ostler, who, after hearing all he had to say again, referred him to the landlord, who was a tall gentleman in a blue neckcloth, a white hat, drab breeches, and boots with tops to match, leaning against a pump by the stable door, picking his teeth with a silver toothpick. This gentleman walked with much deliberation into the bar to make out the bill which took a long time making out, and after it was ready, and paid, a horse had to be saddled, and a man to be dressed, which took up ten good minutes more. 
Meanwhile, Oliver was in such a desperate state of impatience and anxiety, that he felt as if he could have jumped upon the horse himself, and galloped away, full tear, to the next stage. At length all was ready, and the little parcel having been handed up, with many injunctions and entreaties for its speedy delivery, the man set spurs to his horse, and rattling over the uneven paving of the market-place, was out of the town, and galloping along the turnpike road in a couple of minutes. As it was something to feel certain that assistance was sent for, and that no time had been lost, Oliver hurried up the inn-yard with a somewhat lighter heart. He was turning out of the gateway, when he accidentally stumbled against a tall man, wrapped in a cloak, who was at that moment coming out of the inn-door. "'Ha!' cried the man, fixing his eyes on Oliver, and suddenly recoiling. "'What the devil's this?' "'I beg your pardon, sir.' said Oliver. I was in a great hurry to get home, and didn't see you were coming. "'Death!' muttered the man to himself, glaring at the boy with his large dark eyes. "'Who would have thought it? Grind him no ashes. He'd start up from a stone coffin to come in my way.' "'I'm sorry,' stammered Oliver, confused by the strange man's wild look. "'I hope I have not hurt you.' "'Rot you!' murmured the man in a horrible passion between his clenched teeth, if I had only had the courage to say the word, I might have been free of you in a night. Curses on your head, and black death on your heart, you imp! What are you doing here?" The man shook his fist as he uttered these words incoherently. He advanced towards Oliver, as if with the intention of aiming a blow at him, but fell violently on the ground, writhing and foaming in a fit. Oliver gazed for a moment at the struggles of the madman, for such he supposed him to be and then darted into the house for help. Having seen him safely carried into the hotel, he turned his face homewards, running as fast as he could, to make up for lost time, and recalling with a great deal of astonishment and some fear the extraordinary behaviour of the person from whom he had just parted. The circumstance did not dwell in his recollection long, however, for when he reached the cottage there was enough to occupy his mind, and to drive all considerations of self completely from his memory. Rose Maylie had rapidly grown worse. Before midnight she was delirious. A medical practitioner, who resided on the spot, was in constant attendance upon her, and after first seeing the patient, he had taken Mrs. Maylie aside, and pronounced her disorder to be one of a most alarming nature. "'In fact,' he said, "'it would be little short of a miracle if she recovered.' How often did Oliver start from his bed that night? and stealing out, with noiseless footsteps, to the staircase, listened for the slightest sound from the sick-chamber. How often did a tremble shake his frame, and cold drops of terror start upon his brow, when a sudden trampling of feet caused him to fear that something too dreadful to think of had even then occurred! And what had been the fervency of all the prayers he had ever muttered, compared with those he poured forth now, in the agony and passion of his supplication for the life and health of the gentle creature who was tottering on the deep grave's verge. Oh, the suspense, the fearful, acute suspense, of standing idly by, while the life of one we dearly love is trembling in the balance! Oh, the racking thoughts that crowd upon the mind, and make the heart beat violently, and the breath come thick by the force of the images they conjure up before it! the desperate anxiety to be doing something to relieve the pain or lessen the danger which we have no power to alleviate, the sinking of soul and spirit 
which the sad remembrance of our helplessness produces. What tortures can equal these? What reflections, or endeavours, can, in the full tide and fever of the time, allay them? Morning came, and the little cottage was lonely and still. People spoke in whispers. Anxious faces appeared at the gate from time to time. Women and children went away in tears. All the live-long day, and for hours after it had grown dark, Oliver paced softly up and down the garden, raising his eyes every instant to the sick-chamber, and shuddering to see the darkened window, looking as if death lay stretched inside. Late that night Mr. Losburn arrived. "'It is hard,' said the good doctor, turning away as he spoke, "'so young, so much beloved, but there is very little hope.' Another morning. The sun shone brightly as brightly as if it looked upon no misery or care, and with every leaf and flower in full bloom about her, with life and health and sounds and sights of joy surrounding her on every side, the fair young creature lay, wasting fast. Oliver crept away to the old churchyard, and sitting down on one of the green mounds, wept and prayed for her in silence. There was such peace and beauty in the scene, so much of brightness and mirth in the sunny landscape, such blithesome music in the songs of the summer birds, such freedom in the rapid flight of the rook, careering overhead, so much of life and joyousness in all, that, when the boy raised his aching eyes, and looked about, the thought instinctively occurred to him that this was not a time for death, that Rose could surely never die, when humbler things were all so glad and gay, that graves were for cold and cheerless winter, not for sunlight and fragrance. He almost thought that shrouds were for the old and shrunken, and they never wrapped the young and graceful form in their ghastly folds. A knell from the church bell broke harshly on these youthful thoughts. Another. Again. It was tolling for the funeral service. A group of humble mourners entered the gate, wearing white favours, for the corpse was young. They stood uncovered by a grave, and there was a mother, a mother once among the weeping train. But the sun shone brightly, and the birds sang on. Oliver turned homeward, thinking on the many kindnesses he had received from the young lady, and wishing that the time could come again, that he might never cease showing her how grateful and attached he was. He had no cause for self-reproach on the score of neglect, or want of thought, for he had been devoted to her service, and yet a hundred little occasions rose up before him on which he fancied he might have been more zealous, and more earnest, and wished he had been. We need be careful how we deal with those about us, when every death carries, to some small circle of survivors, thoughts of so much omitted, and so little done, of so many things forgotten, and so many more which might have been repaired. There is no remorse so deep as that which is unavailing. If we would be spared its tortures, let us remember this in time. When he reached home, Mrs. Maylie was sitting in the little parlour. Oliver's heart sank at sight of her, for she had never left the bedside of her niece, and he trembled to think what change could have driven her away. He learnt that she had fallen into a deep sleep, from which she would waken either to recovery and life, or to bid them farewell and die. They sat, listening, and afraid to speak, for hours. The untasted meal was removed with looks which showed that their thoughts were elsewhere. They watched the sun as he sank lower and lower, and, at length, 
cast over sky and earth those brilliant hues which herald his departure. Their quick ears caught the sound of an approaching footstep. They both involuntarily darted to the door, as Mr. Losburn entered. "'What of Rose?' cried the old lady. "'Tell me at once. I can bear it. Anything but suspense. Oh, tell me, in the name of heaven!' "'You must compose yourself,' said the doctor, supporting her. "'Be calm. My dear ma'am, pray.' "'Let me go, in God's name. My dear child, she is dead. She is dying.' "'No!' cried the doctor, passionately. "'As he is good and merciful, she will live to bless us all for years to come.' The lady fell upon her knees, and tried to fold her hands together but the energy which had supported her so long fled up to heaven with her first thanksgiving, and she sank into the friendly arms which were extended to receive her. End of chapter 33